Romans 12, starting at verse 1. We focused on verses 1 and 2 last time. We'll be focusing on the text up to verse 8 now. So I'm going to read that section. Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. But he who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Now, we remember chapters 1 through 11. There is this focus on the gospel, the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. And the idea of the righteousness of God that is given to the believer, the imputed righteousness of Christ given to the believer, is the central concern of the book. And that is because the idea is that there is no progress in righteousness and there is no progress in glorifying God in the individual life if there is no justification. God is merciful that he may be feared. Because if we do not see a way of justification, if we do not see a way to be made right with God, we will engage in self-deception where we try to justify ourselves by dumbing down the law or lying to ourselves about what we ourselves are able to do. Or we will seek to hide from ourselves the truth about God and misdefine God. And those are deeply related when you redefine the law of God or you redefine human nature or you redefine God. That Each of those affects the other. But that is the tendency. And so what we saw was the righteousness of God in the law and God's righteousness as a judge leads to the need for the gift of righteousness as an external covering. And when we have the imputed righteousness, the external, credited, legal righteousness of Christ imputed to us, we then are also able, out of gratitude, to pursue sanctification. The Holy Spirit gives us faith, causes us to have faith internally, which is the first part of sanctification, and He grows our faith so that we are more and more holy. And then, there was a defense in chapter 9 of God's righteousness in being the one who predestines all things. And we looked at God's righteousness in His treatment of Israel and the way in which He is filling the earth with the display of His righteousness as the church is sanctified and is sent out to fill the earth. 
And so chapters 12 through 16 are focused on the righteousness of God on display in the rational service of the saints. So, we considered the idea that we are called to live our lives as a living sacrifice. We offer ourselves to God. We have to be holy. We're to focus on the goal of the glory of God. It's to be acceptable in that we use the means He's appointed. So we do what God has commanded for the goal that God has given. And then, that, if we have faith, if we understand what we're doing, it's a rational service. We, have, we are able to, with our minds, with our spirits, we're able to give that sacrifice as a service to God. And so, the, the starting point for being able to use our bodies as a sacrifice that's living is that we have to not be conformed to the world, but instead, we need to be transformed by the renewing of the mind. And so that way we can prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. That, that God defines what's good. God says what's acceptable. And God knows what is perfect, complete, mature. He's given it to us that the law gives us instruction to know how we ought to behave. Now, that's where we left off. And so what I want to do is point you to the bottom of page 2. And I want you to think about if you were playing any game, and somebody told you the rules of the game and the goal of the game, you would use the rules of the game to try to win the game. But in life, oftentimes we think, okay, so the goal of life is to glorify God, and God gives us a law to tell us how to do that. What I'd like to do, though, is figure out the things I want to do. Is there any way I can say that those things are glorifying to God, or is there a way I can make them glorifying to God so I can do what I want to do, not play by the rules of the game, but do what I want to do, and then make that somehow glorify God. And what the law does is it teaches us where the emphasis of our time and thought ought to be. The law teaches us where the emphasis of our time and thought ought to be. Jane Austen wrote a novel called Sense and Sensibility, and in that book, one of the things that gets discussed is a character named Colonel Brandon. And he is talking about a tragic thing that occurred with his brother. And his brother ends up treating a woman very badly and leaving her in a terrible condition. And he says of this man, his pleasures were not what they ought to have been. His pleasures were not what they ought to have been. We so often chase our pleasures. What is it that delights me? As opposed to thinking, is it possible that the things that I find pleasing are things I need to not find pleasing? And so the law of God helps us to see where our delight ought to be. And it helps us to identify not just how to get what we want, but what we should want. And the way you change your desires of what you want is by elevating the thing you ought to desire, so you learn about God, and seeing the reasons why what you want is disappointing, disillusioning, a false God, not going to satisfy. And so you argue with yourself. And that's why this obedience is not just a begrudging external obedience, but rather it's a rational service because you become persuaded that this is the good life. And so 
by seeing the beauty of God and by seeing the goodness of the righteousness of the law of God and seeing the value of God as your possession, that which you ought to glory in, that which you ought to boast about, that which you certainly shouldn't be ashamed of, that by seeing that, this rational service becomes a delight. And so the process of growing in the understanding of God, not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of the mind, that is the starting point for being able to do the rational service. So all the list of things that we're going to talk about today are only things that you can do in a lasting way if you continue to grow in the knowledge of God and have a deepening understanding of the meaningfulness of the distinction between God and not God, creator and creature, between righteousness and unrighteousness, between holiness and profanation. Right? These are the things that you must have an increasing awareness of, and you see the means, the particular actions that are be, to be carried out as things that help you to play the game of life that is fun, enjoyable. And it makes it so that there's a delight even in suffering because it's for a purpose. You have all gone through the experience of trading something that you wanted to keep for something you wanted more and found that trade to be a delight. All of life, when you understand the beauty of God, can increasingly be that. You give up things that you'd say, this is worth something, but it's worth nothing in comparison to the greatness of what I'm getting for it. And so the law of God teaches us how to make those trades, how to win all the time. It shows us what the right choice is, what you ought to do. In economics, there's this idea that you think about rational choices, you're always trading something. There's always opportunity cost. And you think about that, we think about trading with other people, right? And you go, I'm giving something to you, and you're giving something to me. Well, you can't avoid trading, right? Even if you're Robinson Crusoe and you're on an island by yourself, you're always trading one thing for the other. If you sit on the beach, you're not building your hut. If, you, if you're climbing a tree to get coconuts, you're not climbing a tree to get bananas, unless they happen to be particularly close and you have them both within arm's reach, but let's not go there. So we look at these possibilities, and what we see is there's always a trading, even with yourself. You're trading one action for another action. You can't do everything at once. You have to make choices. And the law tells you, here's the right choice. Here's the winning trade. Here's the thing that helps you to gain more rather than less. The law of God is the instruction manual to teach you to grow in the knowledge of God. And the law of God makes sense when it's focused on the goal of growing in the knowledge of God, glorifying God inwardly and externally so that you're able to display that. So that's what we see here. This idea that the acceptable service to God is defined by the law of God. And we can't do that perfectly. We have to have the position of recognizing our guilt, recognizing the grace of God in the gospel, and now out of gratitude, there's an offering of the self as a sacrifice. So the great commandment focuses us on the goal. It's the goal of the game. You glorify God, you love God, you value God, and that's going to cause you to pursue glorifying God. The first four commandments teach us to understand how to love God. The first commandment teaches us what God is, who God is, and so we, we should focus on not having a false God, not having a false definition of God. We shouldn't seek an alternative. 
The second commandment teaches us where and how to worship, right? The temple used to be a commandment that you did worship in this particular place, and that was a part of the second commandment about the acceptable worship of God. Sacrifices were only acceptable there, not other places. Don't go to the high places. Don't do that. That was a part of it. And now where? Throughout the earth. So we have this idea of we are to worship God, and we're to worship him in the way he's appointed, in space how he's, where he's appointed. The why is the third commandment. We're to do it with integrity. We're to use the means in an effort to get more of God. When you worship God for something else, for public respectability, for some sort of external blessing and not to grow in the knowledge of God, you're making something else into God. And that's hypocrisy in worship. And so we're not to take his name in vain. We were to use his name with integrity. And so we use his name in order to connect that symbol of a word, his name, to the meaning, the reality behind that name. Right? The name, we say Jesus. That's an anglicized version of the name. Yeshua. Why don't we say Yeshua? Because we speak the English language, and that's fine. It's not the sound. It's not a magical incantation that if you make the right noise, that that's how the, the power of reality gets connected to you. It's the knowledge of the meaning of the name. And so when we know who Jesus is, what does that label refer to? It's referring to the only redeemer of God's elect, who's prophet, priest, and king of the church, who is Yahweh and who is salvation, and he is the one who saves his people. And so you have this name in whatever language you want, and that name is connected to meaning. And so when you take the name in vain, you are not connecting it to meaning, but instead you're using it fruitlessly, frivolously, not with the meaning attached to it, not for the sake of growing in the knowledge of it, not for the sake of, of spreading the knowledge of that great name. You're using it for something else. And so the fourth commandment tells us about the time order of things. On page three, where it talks about when. When should we do which actions, right? When should I do my ordinary duty of dominion work? When should I specifically set, a time, set aside time for the worship of God without anything else mixed in? The fourth commandment teaches us that. And the fourth commandment uses the Sabbath as the most obvious and principal time. One day in seven given for the worship of God and nothing else. But also there's morning and evening worship. That's incorporated inside of that category. In the old administration, there were the new moons. And there were the festival days. There was the, sixth, the seventh day Sabbath. Well, now we have a first day Sabbath. We don't have those festivals anymore. They're tied up into the first day Sabbath. We don't have the new moons anymore. They're tied up into that first day Sabbath. And so we have the ordinary daily eating of the bread of life, morning and evening. And we have this once a week feast day. And so all of that is given. And we get to verse 3. And there's an explanation that's further given about the idea of this acceptable sacrifice. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. So we go from this general idea of the goal of, of glorifying God and doing that by offering our bodies as a reasonable service to additional motives. And those additional motives also relate to the idea that God has given human beings 
not as an end in themselves, right? You, you hear some people talk about how you ought to treat each person like they're an end in themselves. What? You want me to treat every individual human being like they're God? That's what that means, right? When somebody's an end in themselves, that means there's nothing higher than them. So you just interact with people like they're the highest thing. I don't know about you, but I'm not the highest thing. You can get as much of me as you want, and you will not find me satisfying. You will increasingly find me to be annoying. Three days into being a house guest, I will stink. Right? There are problems with thinking that people, human beings, are the end in themselves. They are not. People exist as a means to glorify God. Does that offend you? Then you have idolatry in your heart. If you find that offensive, you think you are God. And you need to root that out and see why it's wrong. Well, for one thing, have you noticed that your own mind changes from time to time? If that's the case, do you know everything? Because if you didn't learn anything new, why would you change your mind? I see. So because you don't know everything, because your mind changes, you're not all-knowing and you're not eternal. So perhaps, just perhaps, you are not God. And if that's the case, then you ought to consider the possibility that you're not the end in itself. And so you ought to treat yourself and other people like not an end, but as means to the glory of God. And that's actually how you love people. You love people by treating them like they exist for God's glory. If you treat them like they're the end in themselves, you're going to treat them in such a way that you help them to have a great ego. And by a great ego, you mean a great I, right? The great self. And when you make the self too great, you make yourself God. And so that is what is wrong with this self-esteem movement and why the Bible is not a teacher of that doctrine. And so we look here and we must consider, we must soberly examine ourselves and not think of ourselves more highly than we ought. And so the commandment to love your neighbor in the same way that you would love yourself, is the commandment to treat your neighbor like you should treat yourself as a means to glorifying God. Which means you want to see them grow in the knowledge of God because that's for their good. And it means that in doing that, when you teach, you teach yourself. And when you apply the law to them, as you apply the law to yourself, seeking your own good, when you do that, you are going to glorify God and you're going to encourage the growing and the knowledge of God. And so having that view of people allows you to humbly put yourself into a position of decisive service, decisive humility. You may have noticed on the first page, I gave you an odd title, Decisive Humility. That's a pun. Let me explain the pun. It's decisive humility in the first meaning in that it's humility that allows you to make decisions quickly. Not making decisions quickly is not humility. It's annoying. Where do you want to eat? So, that issue of having decisive choices is about having wisdom. And it's about selecting things that are for your good and for the other person's good. Decisive humility, here's the other meaning. Okay? Decisive humility... Humility that brings about conquest of decisive points. In war, it is very rare to be able to go and conquer the enemy's position immediately, everything they have. 
right? You think about a war where you have an advance across the entire front. This is what the Russians just tried to do in Ukraine, right? They said, let's attack from every possible place. Let's see how that goes. And so in attacking from every possible place, they did not concentrate forces effectively. And in not concentrating forces effectively, they were incapable of supplying themselves against the level of resistance that the Ukrainians put up. And so there was a slowdown. They had to reorganize, and then they had to pick decisive places to attack. And so they've refocused, and that's what's occurring now. So when you select decisive points, what you're doing is you're saying, here's the ultimate goal. And I'm going to take lesser points along the way that are more achievable, but still significant. And in taking those, I'm going to improve my capability of winning the overall objective. And so in that process of seeking to obtain the overall objective, those little steps are along the way. Your own life, you need to view in terms of stepping stones. You have problems, you have sin areas, and you can't immediately go to being perfectly holy. So what you need to do is you need to find the places that are most destroying your ability to order your life, and you need to repent of those sins and put on, focus putting on the positive duties that are the alternative to that sin. You are not going to fix all of the areas you are sinning at once. You will die not having completed that. But you should find the places where you are most in rebellion and seek to subdue that area of your life and turn it into a stronghold of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you deal with other people, you have to choose who to spend time with. So you're looking for how far along the way are they, how interested are they, and you're also looking to see what will make it so that you can do more. So if you, and this is going to sound heartless to you, if you have the option of two people that you can spend time with and you think both of them, both of them are interested in Christianity, which one should you spend time with first? The one whose life is in better order is the one who is most likely to be able to help you and take less of your time right away. And so you help them and seek to evangelize to them, and then you go and talk to the other person. Think about the alternative. You go to help the person who's in more need first, and when you do that, where are all of your resources? So, churches that want to go and immediately help the poor and focus their resources on that consume their resources and don't have resources to do other things. If you build up some sort of capability in terms of pulling in people who have resources, then you have resources to help the poor. If you run a business, do you invest in things that are going to get a better return or a less return? Now, in the church, we need to think about, just like in business, by the way, the Lord Jesus Christ has all of the resources on the earth. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills and some additional ones. So he can accomplish his goals. But what you do is you think about decisive points. And what you don't do is you don't say, we're not going to think about anything in terms of the practical realities of things. That's some of the tendency of saying, we're, acting, we're not acting in faith if we don't just disregard strategy. That's not faith. That's presumption. What you do is you set aside resources to focus on particular goals. And providentially, when people come across your path, you help them. But when you have enough resources to deal with the problem, then you start to work on that problem. Does a wise man start building a tower before he counts the cost, or does the fool? 
So the intelligent thing to do is to count costs and to consider the reasonable prospect of rewards and to take on projects that help in that way. So our church is small. So the natural tendency is to want to focus on evangelism. Well, we have one officer. Our decisive point is, let's get another household in good enough order that we can have another officer. But there's so many needs in the world. Yes, and if we try to take them all on, we'll be swamped, and we won't exist anymore. So what do you do? You pick problems, and you get your house in order before you go help out your neighbor's house. You don't get your house in order so you can then just you know, kayak and you know, go on jet skis and take trips to wherever. You get your house in order so you can help your neighbor. And so those things are good, they're blessings, and you can enjoy things that are fun. But you don't do that when you have immediate urgent needs. But you have to always be enjoying some sort of blessing of God or else you're never going to enjoy it because you're never going to complete all the problems. So the question is, how do you deal with matters of proportion? The law of God deals with these things. What happens in a lot of churches who try to reject the law is they say, you need to give everything you can afford to give. The tithe is abolished. That's very freeing until you realize what's being said is every penny you have left over, you're obligated by the law of God now to give. That's not what the law teaches. The Old Testament taught that you should take 10% of your wealth and spend it for the blessing and enjoyment of your house, the enjoyment of the blessings of God. That sort of principle that you ought to spend money on blessing even while there's other problems to enjoy is an ongoing thing. So a lot of couples will get into a process where they'll go, we have problems in our marriage, and so what we're going to do is we're going to spend all of our time working on the problems in the marriage. Is that going to build the relationship very effectively? Do you think that they should spend some time working on problems and some time dealing with the blessings and enjoying things, going out on a, on a date night or sharing a dinner, asking somebody to watch the kids so they can spend some time enjoying each other? And so you have both the spending of resources to, pro to solve problems and the enjoyment along the way. And the ordering of both is such that you say, can we fix the problems in our own house? Okay, no, we don't have the resources to fix them all at once. Let's order them. And then we need to enjoy some blessings. Should we, we don't have enough resources to solve our problems in our house. Should we now use those resources on blessing to go do something that's extreme or outside of that realm of the household? No, there's a proportionality to both. You say, if I'm going to seek to order my house, what I'm going to do is spend the resources focusing there, and I'm going to spend resources on blessing my house for the enjoyment of my house. And once the house is in good order, you can spend resources helping to solve problems outside of your house and blessing people outside of your house for their enjoyment of things. If you're not doing it for your own household, don't do it for those outside. And you see that over and over again. This kind of grows out. So you go from the individual to the household to the church and to the broader church to the state and perhaps to the broader civil sphere. You have covenant duties. And this ordering of responsibility, you have to select. And you have to choose who to work with. And so, so often we think about cooperating with people and we think about cooperating with people in other countries or other states or whatever are you cooperating with people in the same church building like are you are you taking money to support ministries while the church is getting in order locally 
Are you taking your time to serve in a ministry outside of the local church when the local church is in disorder and we have one officer? You think about these things. I'm not aware of this. I'm not like, there's not a specific thing that I'm thinking about rebuking here. But I'm asking you to take your frame of mind and say, well, okay, I need to think about the needs locally and build things in order. And then you go out from there and you use the abundance to support outwardly. And so if that's the case, we tend to say, well, because I ought to support my local getting in order, I can justify not giving things outside of that local sphere, and then we don't actually do the work of ordering things locally. We just kind of use it as a reason to not do the things in the local space or in the external space. So you think about the Sabbath, and there's a similar frame of reference that people have. You go, I'm not supposed to work on the Sabbath. So what I'm thinking about is the idea of, of recreation on the Sabbath. You say, what's more important, work or recreation? If the Sabbath is not supposed to be used for work, then are recreations, are ordinary recreations, more important than your ordinary work? And so when you think about the ordinary work being put aside, it's in order to focus on the worship of God. And so it's about an order of priority. Displacing the worship of God with recreation would be an even worse disordering. So we think about where, we think about when, we think about how, and we think about the goal for the glory of God. And then we think about ordering our own lives, and we see our neighbors, and how do we serve our neighbor in the ordering of their lives, and what should we teach and we need to see them ordering their lives in the same way. And that becomes a rule of practice. As you come to agreement, you have a shared rule of practice. So, Paul is talking about here how we use gifts to bring about that functioning together. We have to have the right doctrine. We have to have a shared goal. And we have to set rules of functioning. And those rules of functioning are some of what Paul's going to lay out. And he's going to say this, here's the rule of functioning as it applies to you as you examine yourself with your own gifts. And so the principles of function are what he's laying out. Verse 3, through the grace given to me. He's saying here, he's been given some gift. What gift was he given? He was given the gift of apostleship. The gift of apostleship includes the prophetic gift. The prophetic gift is him speaking God's words. And if you speak God's words, then you're using that prophetic speaking for the blessing of the church. Now, the first gift that gets listed after the colon is if prophecy, then let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. And so, he is actually addressing his own gift first. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. None of us have the gift of prophecy now. He starts with himself to show that he's applying it to himself, which is him giving an example of humility. He's showing there are rules that apply to him. He's not above the law. And in applying those rules to himself, what he's doing is he is saying, you can judge me and we ought to all judge each other by the rules that the Lord Jesus Christ has put into place. 
So, the grace given to Paul is apostleship. That's what's being referred to in the gift of prophetic speech. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Now, thinking of yourself more highly than you ought relates to the fifth commandment, the ninth commandment, and the tenth commandment. And so the questions in the larger catechism that relate to those are very profitable to read to understand the duties that are being laid out here. The fifth commandment, ninth commandment, and tenth commandment are what Paul is focusing on. And he's focusing on those as they relate to service. And so he talks about the grace given to him and the prophetic gifting. And then he talks to everyone and says, this is not just to officers. We're talking about gifts not offices. Now, a lot of people will take this chapter and they will try to apply it to offices. And here's what happens. You, you read all the list of giftings and you make each one into an office. So look at, uh, again, the last part of, of verse 6. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. The word there is uh, basically the root of the word deacon. So uh, the idea of, of if, if diaconal work, then yet let, it use, let us use it in our service, in our diaconal work. And then he who teaches in teaching, you'll say, well, here's an office of the pastor teacher. He who exhorts in exhortation. <coughs> and so you'll say, well, maybe there's a distinction between the pastor, the preacher, and the teacher, which is what a lot of historic Presbyterians have done. They'll have the doctor, and they'll have the pastor. And they'll say, he who gives with liberality, well, that's part of diaconal work. He who leads with diligence, here, here's the ruling elder. And he who shows mercy with cheerfulness, that's a part of the diaconal work. And so there's this going back and forth between specific offices and gifting that gets done. And so this is one of the major proof texts in support of the distinction of teaching elder versus ruling elder. That idea of he who leads with diligence is used as one of the principal texts to support the idea of a ruling elder office. Now, I reject that reading. I don't think there's any reason to believe we're talking about offices here. He specifically says we're talking about gifts. And I would posit to you that not every gift implies a new office. That in fact, you need multiple gifts to fulfill any particular office. You read the requirements for a deacon, he has to have a lot of gifting to fulfill the office of deacon. And an elder has to have all the same giftings, plus... The ability to teach. And so the offices that exist have multiple giftings required for them. And these giftings are not a list of offices. This is a list of gifts. And it's talking about how every believer ought to apply their gifts. So we're talking about the use of of gifts and offices are a part of the set of gifts but that's not what's being talked about these are Holy Spirit powers these are Holy Spirit gifts the powers not the offices and that's what's being focused on so we examine ourselves with humility and we need to honestly apply to ourselves thought about our gifting and 
we've been given a measure of faith. And so we have to think about examining ourselves and we have to think about the measure of faith that we have. So what you're doing is you're looking to see, do I actually have a particular gift or not? If you don't have that gifting, then don't focus on serving in that way. You're looking for giftings you actually have. Now, I like to think of myself as having all of the giftings, and they're all great. I'm really good at all of the things. However, you may have noticed that there are things I'm not great at. And so, if I'm considering myself, and I'm not properly applying humility, it would be helpful for other people to tell me things I'm good at, which will reaffirm that I'm good at everything, because those are just some of the things you're telling me I'm good at. You don't have time to tell me all the things I'm good at. So, you need to help me to see, and each other to see, the places where you could, the places where you have opportunity for growth. Right? And so when you find the places for the opportunities for growth, then you either say, for now I'm not going to try to apply those for public service, or you think, I'm going to try to grow in it, but I'm going to focus on helping with the things I am good at. The Bible teaches us to lean on our strengths. And so you use your strengths to serve. And so when your own life is in sufficient order that you are, for example, not starving, right? when you're doing enough work to earn for yourself that you are not starving, then you can help other people. If you do not have a job and are not able to provide for yourself, you need to do more work for yourself. And when you are providing for yourself so that you have food and clothing and shelter and you have enough things to be able to study to grow in the knowledge of God for yourself in your own time, then you've provided for your basic necessities. And any excess, you can start to have savings and you can start to give to bless others. And that includes time. So there's an order of priority. And so this idea that you think soberly about your gifting. Now, when you see your gifting, you might see the gifting but not really know how to use it well. You might not have a measure of faith to understand how well to use it. And so a part of the benefit of other people who have more wisdom and who have a stronger gifting or have been applying the gifting for longer is that they can help you to see how in faith to use the gifting more. And so we have the principle of the idea of training and testing for people as they're applying gifts. And so this idea that you, by the measure of faith that you have, apply the gifts that you have, and you want to grow in faith, and applying your gifts is a part of how you grow in faith. And so when you don't know how to apply a gift, what you ought to do is to find somebody who's in a position of leadership in your house or in your church and seek opportunity to serve under their direction. Everybody wants to save the world and nobody wants to help mom wash the dishes, right? And so you go, well, I think I have the gift of something better than that. Okay, great. Prove that by washing the dishes. And when you've done that, well, we'll see what else is on the list. And so that process of submitting oneself to authority and finding ways to do work helps you to grow in displaying that and gives opportunity for others to recognize that gifting. So verse 4, for as, many as, for as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same functions, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Many members, one body. 
Right? There's a lot of us individually, and we are united together legally in Christ. We have lots of members, different functions. So even though we have an equality of essence, we have difference in terms of function. We're each human. We have different functions. So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So now, we're not just sharing an essence. We are members of one another. How are we members of one another? Everybody wants to make unity mystical. Because it sounds more fun that way. Because you can't really explain it, and the things you can't explain aren't fun enough. And so you're looking for something that's going to draw your attention. Here's the unity you've got. You can have intellectual unity. You can have legal unity. You can have functional unity. And you can have deepening legal unity by covenanting. That's it. It's all you've got. If you don't find this inspiring, think about it more. You will. Intellectual unity allows us to agree on what's true, what's real, what's good. Legal unity makes us so that we are bound together in Christ. We're forgiven in Christ. We have a claim on the inheritance together. That's pretty exciting. Functional unity is us working together. And us having a commitment to work together is the covenanted unity. And so that covenanted unity is what local bodies, baptizing people, taking the Lord's Supper, having officers take oaths. That's what that's about. That's the organizing. That's the maturing. That's what happens. That's how you function together in a committed way. And so that covenanted uniformity, that's the goal to make it so you can keep accomplishing more. And so we have a membership class that we're going through. That's about covenanted uniformity. It's about getting people to covenant, to work together, and to go through conflict resolution before separating from each other. And you might think, well, it seems much to do about little. When was the last time you sat down with somebody about a really hard conflict, and they sat down and worked through it with you in detail? If it's happened to you, it was probably a really big deal to you in your life, and it was a really big blessing that it got resolved. If it hasn't happened to you, Maybe it's partly your fault. But also, it's possible the other people just weren't willing to have peace. And you've been dealing with the curse of strife. And your own life would probably be significantly better if the other people had also sought peace. And so a commitment to do that, an express commitment to do that, makes it so you can function together. When you work together with people, you necessarily expose yourself to them. You give them information about yourself, and you show them details about yourself, and you make it possible for them to harm you. Covenanting makes it so there's an obligation, and there's a community that's going to help to hold responsible. It makes it so there's space where you can work together and have greater security. So the intellectual unity, the legal unity in Christ, and the functional unity are all supported by covenanting together. And that's reaffirmed in the Lord's Supper over and over again. So that gives space where you can give your gifts, where you can pour yourself out, where you can, with liberality, hold things with an open hand. And so this allows us to not have a flinch response every time we think about the idea of trying to serve somebody else and exposing ourselves. The commitment to work through conflict. And so unity 
is built on those things. That's what unity is. That's what we're talking about. So how are we members of each other? We're members of each other legally in Christ, and we have acknowledged that with external covenanting. So, verse 6, Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. So, in the context of this mutual obligation, this acknowledgement of being connected to one another, let's use the gifts. We are realizing that our own interests are tied together. It is my interest to serve your interest. Because it's my interest to glorify God. It's my interest to grow in the knowledge of God. It's my interest to see you grow in the knowledge of God. It's my interest for us to work together to create external things that help to show the glory of God. That is in my interest. It's in your interest. This is how you seek your own good. And so this is what's being laid out here is, here's the methodology for displaying the glory of God in the world and bringing about transformation of things in terms of internally helping to renew the mind and also externally helping to order things in such a way as to show the glory of God in the world. This commitment to work together. And so the particular gifts we'll have to talk about next time are laid out in terms of prophecy and service and teaching and exhortation, and giving, and leading, and works of mercy. And so with prophecy, we have the inspired word. With ministry, there's the pursuit of service to help each other. In teaching, there's the ordering of doctrine to help people to understand things more clearly, the systematic ordering of things. In exhortation, there's sort of kingly speaking to draw people to action and to motivate them onward. The word exhortation has to do with giving strength. The giving in terms of seeing that the capital that you have, you're a steward of, and it's your job to take the property that God has blessed you with and to use it to glorify God. In your leading, to lead with diligence, to not be like Adam and be diffident, to not be like Samson and be a conqueror and then grow lazy, but to be like Christ, the diligent man. And in the showing of mercy, to do it with cheerfulness. And I'll tell you what, most of the time people who need mercy have done something to get themselves into trouble, and the reason that we're called to be cheerful about it is because we're tempted when people do things that are not particularly wise and they get into trouble to be angry with them and to resent them for getting into trouble. And so we're called to be merciful to them with cheerfulness. If people were just always the victims of circumstance and they never did anything wrong to make their own situations bad, it'd be really easy to be merciful with cheerfulness. Being merciful with cheerfulness is more difficult when other people maybe might have done something to worsen their situation. And so those are the things we're called to do. And this is how you function well together. And so we'll look at those in detail. But the motive behind it, you have to see the goal. You have to know the rules of the game. You have to understand how to prioritize things. And the prioritization of things has to do with closer duty versus further duty. So comments, questions, objections from the voting members as with speaking rights. Mr. Nye. Thank you for your teaching, Elder Reese. Um, I wanted to, to confirm when you were talking about the types of unity that exist um, before that you, you listed for intellectual, legal, Covenantal and functional, is that correct? Or is that... Yeah, covenantal I listed last, uh, uh, but yes. And so covenantal is, is legal, okay. but it's, it's, the, it's the legal in terms of 
you know, we are legally united to Christ because the, the covenant's in us, and there's an external element of the covenant. Everyone who's baptized is in the covenant, but not everybody who's, in the, in the, who's been baptized has the covenant in them. Sure. Right, so that's, what, that's the differentiation there. Okay, and then you said that we can grow in, in covenantal unity or deepen in covenantal unity. Um, can we also deepen in intellectual and functional unity? Absolutely. It's a great question. So can we deepen into the types of, of unity? Yes, we can. As we know, as we know more truth we are, and we know the same truths, we're deepening our intellectual unity. As we, um, as we increasingly operate well together and we do more things effectively and we produce more, we're, we're functioning with greater functional unity. Uh, you know, so the idea of a well-oiled machine or humming like an engine at high RPMs or whatever, right? So you move to that. And then that covenantal unity, the more you've covenanted in that's actually in the Bible, right? So you think about the Nicene Creed, you know, in around 300 versus the Westminster Confession around 1640, right? And you say, which one has more covenantal unity? Right, the Westminster Confession is way more content. That's the maturing of the church and its external covenanting. And so the church matures over time. And the way we get to increasing covenantal unity, uh, I was talking to Mr. Marsh mentioned, for example, the idea that you know, there have been growth since the 1640s in terms of the doctrinal growth that's occurred. There's been engaging with new problems, responding to skepticism, things like that. That's an increasing uh, intellectual knowledge of the truth by some people. That's spreading to particular members of the church. But, so there's maybe an increasing intellectual unity, a deepening of that. But the idea that that would be captured confessionally and covenanted to would be an increasing of the covenantal unity. And so that's what I was referring to last week, for example, in the membership class. And so the desire to see, let's not just have covenantal unity stop at the 1640s. Let's try to see more happen and see a growth in covenantal unity. That's how those things would relate to each other, for example. Thank you. Great. Any other comments or questions, objections? Okay. Great, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us to grow in knowledge. We thank you again for the overturning of Roe v. Wade. We ask that you would cause uh, biblical justice to be administered in our state in response. And we ask that you would bless us with the teaching of the word, that you would cause us to be effective, that you would help us to function in unity, that you would help us to pursue the same goal together, that we would have shared doctrine, that we would be in covenantal unity, that we would see covenantal uniformity expand throughout the church in a broader way, and that we would see reformation and advance in terms of the confessional state of the church. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.